When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Lore Lodge Official Podcast. I am your host, Aiden Mattis. This right here is Aiden Thornbury, also known as Thornbussy. And we have a very special guest today. <laughs> We've got Mike from Inspiring Philosophy here. Mike, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. My name is Michael Jones. I run the Inspiring Philosophy YouTube channel. I uh, make a lot of graphic animated videos. I'm a Christian apologist, just got my master's in philosophy. And um, now I'm branching out on TikTok now. And that is how I found you. Uh, initially, I saw you doing some takedowns of some various Christian conspiracy theories and stuff like that. Uh, I think one of my favorite ones so far has been the the breakdowns of the whole myth that Christianity is just comedic uh, religion repurposed, which mm. I, I love when people use the term Kemet because every single time it's a very obvious identifier that they're driven more by ideology than actually spreading a message that's coherent. Because it's one of those, it, it's always funny to me when people are so obsessed with terminology that they don't think, is this an effective way to communicate? And that's how you know that they're not thinking clearly, they're not, they're not coming from the right place. It's immediately like, how do, I, how do I say the thing that makes me sound the smartest without actually communicating any information to anyone? Yeah, it's regurgitation versus discussion. Yeah. And I think you posted yeah, one like of those they... recently. Oh yeah, I just did one the other day responding to someone claiming the onk is the cross. It, oh, it's like okay really do we have to debunk this i mean it's again it's like that really was, bad stuff that's one of my favorites because it's just like that's that's not even religious that's a historical misunderstanding because the romans were using the cross over a hundred years <laughs> before christ was killed using it um i think it was the second servile war they crucified people for like 60 kilometers along the road to rome and that was long before christ was born yeah, it's like, where do you think they got the cross from? From like, they, they, yeah. like, come on, use some common sense here. Also, like, the first symbol was a fish, so. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, you know, it's that, that's always a fun one when people are like, why do so many Christians have, like, a fish on their bumper? And I'm like, that's, it's because the fish, and you could use the fish as an arrow, like, there were a whole bunch of different things. They're like, wait, Rome wasn't always Christian? And I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> do we not remember Jupiter and Mars? Yeah. <laughs> You'd be surprised how little people tend to remember, dude. Uh, apparently. Um, but yeah, so you and I, uh, you know, I've been following you for a little bit, but you and I actually got connected because I did a video recently about the flood and the the reasoning for the flood, which, of course, everyone has taught the story that uh, Noah was basically the last righteous man on Earth, and for that reason... Um, he, he and his family were spared, that it was a, a moral righteousness. And then the version that you get if you read the Book of Enoch takes a very different course, that it's the Nephilim polluted the world, and so God had to wash it all away and start clean, and to give us Noah was to allow the human race to continue. And that, that one implies some sort of genetic purity line. Which, of course, a lot of people got in my comments section and were like, this is, a, this is a bad precedent. I think you said it's a bad precedent. A whole bunch of people said it's a bad precedent. And, of course, I'm sitting there like, ah, yeah, maybe, maybe I should have clarified that this, this is specifically, you know, a, a, a problem of celestial and 
biological, not <laughs> race or ethnicity, because obviously you can't take angel breeding with human logic and apply it to human breeding with human of a different color. No. Yeah. Yeah, typically, like, people have been tagging me in TikTok videos to respond to, so I've been just trying to get as many as I could. But, I mean, I'm always interesting to talk about this topic because I don't I don't take that view. I mm-hmm. personally do not – I'm not convinced – I mean, I used to, but I'm not convinced anymore that the sons of God are divine beings in Genesis mm-hmm. 6. Um, if people want to know more about my interpretation, which I won't have time to cover everything here, but on my YouTube channel, Inspiring Philosophy, I have a 36-minute video called Genesis 6A – the Nephilim, and the reason why it's called that is because it's part of my Genesis 1-11 to series. Got it. All right, and I did notice you, like I do, have a tattoo on your arm that is not in English. Oh, yeah, I too. What's, what's your, what do your say? This is Hosea 4-6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, and 2 Corinthians 10-5, we destroy arguments. Mm-hmm. Love that. Mine's <laughs> not anything biblical. Mine says I am not afraid in Gaelic. Um, oh, I mean, but it's yeah. still, it, it, there's a through line of, you know, kind of... Yeah. hopeful and optimistic viewpoints in various degrees yeah, yeah i think it's I, I think it's a great spot to display a message I would on your say forearm. So. um you really wear your heart on your sleeve you know um i don't have enough important messages in my life to write on me yet so if, um, if we get there we'll get there we'll get there at some point we'll yeah. find something for you uh be bef- yeah so i do want to hop in you know to the the sons of god discussion but before we do that you know what what's how'd you get into what you do you know was it that you started college and gravitated towards religious studies or, you know, how, how, did you get to where you are now? No. So I went to school for initially to be a video editor, uh, animator way back in like graduated in 2011 uh, as an undergraduate. Uh, and then I couldn't get a job. My only job I could get was a nighttime <laughs> security guard uh, sitting in a trailer all this time. And I'm like, you know what? I could start doing YouTube stuff. I mean, this was back in like 2011. So mm-hmm. we're talking ages ago. Uh, and then one thing led to another. It just sort of snowballed. I just kept getting more popular, and I just kept making more videos. And then eventually I decided to file, get a nonprofit behind it, start getting donors to say, hey, you donate me. I can do this full-time. 2019, I went full-time, got my master's in philosophy, and here we are. Damn. So where'd you go? Where, I, I didn't catch it. You, oh, for philosophy? Yeah. University of Arizona. University of Arizona. All right. Yeah. I find I... Uh, it's weird how few religious studies degrees there are in this country. I've I've had trouble finding one. I'm sorry. Do do you remember what colleges focus on? And yeah, like, good point. Yeah, um, we will not be getting political <laughs> no, no, in this no, podcast. No, not a shot. But yeah, no for chance. me, um, you know, when I was at Penn State, it was like you could do a four year degree, and not a single, no, no matter what you did, you could not make it a religious studies one. Um, you know, I, they had Jewish studies, they had classics, they had medieval, basically every single component part of what would be a religious studies degree Mm. I took and got, and they would not give me a religious studies major. Mm. I thought it was very strange. They had to keep the Jewish studies major because if they got rid of it, um, there might be some, some outcry. It would be definitively discriminatory. Yeah. Uh, it was a weird situation where like my major medieval studies was, um, there were only two people in my year in my program. And it was, it's every year it's on the chopping block, and the only reason it keeps going is because the professors volunteer uh, to teach those courses. Wow, yeah. interesting. They all get cross-listed as history or something else, though. Um, but yeah, so to, to jump into this conversation, um, you know, for those those who follow me, they probably are aware, my view on this is that the the sons of God terminology, B'nai Elohim, refers to uh, angels. And my reasoning for that comes partially from um, my studies with my my study Bible and the commentary in it, it's the Charles Ryrie KJV study Bible. 
and also the, the the context of the other times that that terminology is used. In the Old Testament, it's used also in Job, um, and I have those passages pulled up. We'll get into them. But my my thinking on this, because I was always taught the Sunday school version, you know, God saw that man was wicked. God decided to wipe it all away. And then afterwards, he gave us the rainbow as a promise he would never do it again. Um, as I got older, as I went into school, as I started reading some of the more apocryphal stuff uh, and, and gaining some of that context, which, again, it's very important to be aware that the Apocrypha was designated that way for a reason. It wasn't just the, everyone thinks it was the Catholic Church. It wasn't. Everyone thinks that the Apocrypha is the Apocrypha or that it's, you know, hidden because the Catholic Church did not want to have people reading it, um, which just isn't the case at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, Correct. But got to a point where I started questioning it. And my, my belief was since this terminology in the Old Testament is only ever used to refer to the angels, then, you know, since these were in the same chapter, it seems to be causality. You might take mm-hmm. a different tack from that. So what's your, you know, give us the, the 30,000 feet version of this. So the reason why I don't take that view is because I think internal evidence needs to be primary when we're studying text. And one of the things I have problems when it comes to Genesis 6, 1, 4, is it doesn't really talk about divine beings, I guess, if God is mad at divine beings, there needs to be a divine curse upon them, divine punishment. We see the exact opposite in Genesis 3. I think the Nahash is referring to a divine being, namely a rebellious seraph, um, and we see specific uh, punishments directed towards there. But when we get to Genesis 6... Uh, God says, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that sort of implies that he's upset with the sins of humans, and then there's no direction after that towards the sin of divine beings. I'm aware of the whole sons of God argument. I have some pushback on that from cultural context, uh, some other issues as well. Uh, but generally, uh, what I'm trying to do is go from the internal context. If you look at Genesis 6, 1, 4 primarily, if, all the, if we didn't have the Bible, if all we have is Genesis 6, 1 to 4 and nothing else, there's nothing in there by itself that would suggest there's some sort of divine being happening here mm-hmm. or divine beings you know, intermarrying and having hybrid children. Uh, the internal evidence says the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive and took them as wives. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that to me and to other scholars like Meredith Klein, Alan Millard would say, well, that suggests that who God is mad at is two groups of humans, namely the sons of God, daughters of men. Same thing in verse 4. It talks about the Nephilim, and it defines the word very much for us, or these were the mighty men of old, mm-hmm. men of renown. Now, that word mighty men is the exact same word that is used in Genesis 10 to describe Nimrod, who mm-hmm. is a descendant from Cush, so he is just purely human. Mm-hmm. So it very much seems to be the implication that what we're getting here is that they're just men. Mm-hmm. So my specific interpretation is, is that the story picks up from Genesis 4. Lamech, sinful, uh, has multiple wives. Mm-hmm. Jump to Genesis 6. Now things have gotten so bad that even the sons of God, these rulers who are meant to represent uh, humanity, uh, have heavenly decree to rule, have now, they are also sinning. They are taking as many daughters of men as they want because they're attractive. Mm-hmm. It's just getting out of hand. So that's generally how I go with the, the text. So you're looking at it as a, a basically the line of Adam, the line of Seth, even though... No. So it's not, you're not looking at it as a line of Seth versus a line of Cain. No, that's a, that's a slightly different interpretation. My view is that sons of God does not refer to the line of Seth. It refers specifically to rulers, priests, people that were sort of given kingship from on high, like mm-hmm. divinely rulers. And the way I get this is a cultural context. So like the tale of King Coret, which is a Canaanite text, refers to him 
the king as the son of El. Mm -hmm. Gudea cylinders calls Gudea the son of um, Nin Gishzida, which is another name for a god. Mm -hmm. um, and there even is a little... And so you also, if, for example, in the Kumash, mm -hmm. uh, which is a later uh, translation of the... Or a Jewish work that mm -hmm. has commentary along with the Torah, they translate it as rulers as well in there. Uh, and so you can see other places in the Bible, sometimes like David is called God's son, mm -hmm. uh, 2 Samuel 7, 1, 4, that kind of stuff, Psalm 2, 6, this kind of idea. So sometimes rulers are referred to as like the sons of God mm -hmm. or God's son. It's in the cultural context. It can be in some biblical works. So that's generally how I see it, is the rulers in that sense. Got it. Um, and, and to be clear, when you, in, in Genesis 3, are you referring, when you say Nahash, are you referring to the serpent? Yeah, that's the serpent. It's Nahash. Yeah. Um, and I have a video on that, Genesis 3a, the serpent. I just go into why I think that's a divine being. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it makes sense that it would be a divine being. It's Yeah. Which of the actual animals was going to know? Like, go, go read Genesis 3 in the International Standard Version, mm -hmm. ISV. It doesn't say serpent at all. They use a different word to translate it. It's kind yeah, of interesting. I'm, I'm going to pull it up right now so that I can read it for everybody. Um, yeah. So in terms of the, you know, the issue of, of then... The, the flood, are we saying that, that... What's your take on the 120 years thing? Because I've seen some people say that the 120 years is now humans will only live up to 120 years, and then I've heard other people say there will be 120 years before the flood. Which interpretation of that do you take? So my general understanding of a lot of biblical numbers is that they are often symbolic. Uh, this is a very common theme throughout the Hebrew Bible. I did a whole video on Genesis 5 as part of that series where I go into, look at how this number is used here, another symbolic number here. It's in the cultural context as well. So I tend to look at it as it's a, um, it could be a grace period uh, before the flood, um, it, but it basically is a hundred, it's basically more in the sense of it's a symbolic number for completion. Mm -hmm. Got it. So just to read everybody out, the uh, the ISV version of Genesis 3 is called the Shining One, not the Serpent. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Which I do find interesting considering that uh, Star of the Morning and, and Day Star and things like that are also used later on. I don't know that they're necessarily connected, but I think that... Well, I, I think they are. are. Uh, Michael Heiser makes a good argument they are mm -hmm. connected. The reason why they translate a Shining One is because that word Nahash can be translated three different ways depending on what vowels you supply. So it could be Nahash, serpent, mm -hmm. it could, if you, but if you're going to add different vowels, it could be deceiver, mm -hmm. or, or if you apply different vowels, it could be uh, shining one. And it's similar to other Hebrew words like Nahushtet mm -hmm. for like uh, shiny brass. Now Heiser argues it's actually a triple enton. It's actually employing all three of those meanings simultaneously. Which would make sense. I mean, you know, when, you, when you think about it, because it would, could have taken the form of a serpent and it's deceiving and it's also this... And and that's that is where I've seen also a lot of people get into dualism with the Bible, and that's one thing I would be curious to you about. Somebody who does this full time is how do you explain that um, the the God Satan dynamic is not the same thing as Gnostic dualism? Right. Well, the way you get a I mean, actually building on Genesis three is actually quite helpful because um, it we we know it's a serpentine creature. Okay, so we don't think this is so. This was originally a servant of God that rebelled. Uh, if you go to Genesis 6, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 6, my bad, when it talks about Isaiah seeing God on his throne surrounded by winged seraph, uh, mm -hmm. we have ancient depictions of seraph from Israel. They're on little seals. They're always depicted as winged serpents. Mm -hmm. We know they're seraph, they're serpent-type creatures. So basically what Isaiah saw in his vision was God surrounded by winged serpents praising him. 
Mm-hmm. Now, if you just take that same logic and apply it to Genesis 3, where there's a shining serpentine creature, it's a rebellious seraph. It was originally a servant of God that rebelled uh, and decided to deceive Adam and Eve. So from that, it follows there's not some sort of other power out there. This is a, re- a rebellion happening within God's own order. Really quickly, in re- reference to the conversation, specifically somewhat debate between you two and the reference of sons of God being angels, flesh, and Ephraim mm-hmm. versus, you know, not... Uh, somebody in the chat named Plaz said, uh, what was the terminology used for the angels in the story of the destruction of Sodom? That could give some context to the conversation. Uh, I know it's not B'nai Elohim. No, and there's also um, debate about uh, that as well, because it talks about you know Yahweh reigning from earth and reigning from heaven. So there's this dual structure when it comes to Yahweh and how he's reigning down on there. There's actually some very interesting different debates about that back and forth. Mm-hmm. Now, I will concede, for the sake of the question, that any other time the, the phrase... Sons of God shows up in the Bible other than Genesis 6, it is referring to divine beings. Yeah. I, I fully concede that. Heiser's convinced me that on uh, Psalm 82, for example. Like, I used to think it was about judges, and now I'm like, eh, he's probably right about there. The reason, but I mean, also notice in Genesis 3, the Nahash is referring mm-hmm. to a divine being. Right. But in the other time the word Nahash shows up in the Bible, it's referred to just a regular serpent or, you know, someone being, you know, deceitful. It doesn't refer to a divine being. So yeah, we have a precedence right now. Causes a bit of a <laughs> yeah. tra- it, it, I, I think a lot of people don't realize that when you're translating the Hebrew, there's no vowels in it. Mm. So there there mm-hmm. are times when there could be multiple terms. Yeah. And that's another thing where people are like, oh, well, this translation says this and this translation says that. How can they not agree? And it's like, well, you're missing the vowels. Um, Got to reconstruct yeah. what the full word would have been from the context. Mm. That's not flawless. Um, but to, to give people an idea of what we're talking about in case they don't know the exact passages that we're talking about with this, this children, the sons of God issue... Um, from, from the ASV, what we're reading here, what we're using, the ASV, to give everybody an idea of how this was compiled, used all of the available uh, documentation. Um, the, the NASV, the NESV, and the NKJV all also include the changes made by the Dead Sea Scrolls. For those in, in the chat that don't know what all of the abbreviations mean, could you say the following? American Standard Version, English Standard Version, and King James Version. Golden. Um, the process for translating that is used for these Bibles is that they go directly from the source material, so they will take as much of the early original Hebrew and Greek as they can and then tr- translate it directly into English. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have the misconception that the KJV is translated from Vulgar Latin, which would have been translated from Latin, which would have been translated from Greek, which would have been... <laughs> you, you get the point? Yeah. Um, the, the, N- the KJV, the ASV, and the ESV are actually all more direct translations than like the Catholic version of the Bible. How um, much now... What's the split now generally between Greek and original Hebrew? In the Bible? Yeah, yeah, the entire okay. New Testament is in Greek. Is it really? Okay. Mm-hmm. And the entire Old Testament was originally in Hebrew and Aramaic. Yeah. And some Aramaic, yeah. Yeah. Got it. Okay, cool. Um, it was, uh, yeah, you know, th- that's another thing that people tend to mix up. Because the Old Testament does have a Greek version. It's called the Septuagint, and that basically means the, of the 70. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened was they took a whole bunch of scholars, uh, Jewish scholars, and said, here, translate this into Greek. This was uh, in the Hellenistic period. So that's the earliest... I believe that's the earliest uh, translation of the Bible from Hebrew into a different language, is it not? Uh, yeah, that would be the earliest translation. Uh, uh, yeah, that's yeah. I mean, it was because a lot of the at the time the Jews in Alexandria were not really speaking Hebrew, and they needed a Greek version, so they had a Greek version. And so there's some differences when we get with the Masoretic and the Septuagint. Yeah, but the the Septuagint is considered a very good translation because it was seventy independent translation efforts that were then compiled hmm. um now to give everybody the, the, the for the most part <laughs> um what's what's I mean, your that, that's one what's your what's your disagreement there sure. 
Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's traditionally that's, that's what it is. Yeah, it's a later story. We're not sure how accurate that is. There really was these 70 that, you know, worked to translate it all. Uh, it's just the scholars are just do not think that is actually how it happened. Right. Uh, so, but I mean, that's just, that's a whole other thing. And it, for me, it's like, okay, whatever. It's it's still a pretty good Either translation way. if you compare it to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the, the verses that we're talking about here that form the foundation of this discussion are from Genesis 6 in the ASV. It's, And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the ground, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all that they chose. And Jehovah said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for, he, for that he is also flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same were mighty men of old, men of renown. Um, so, for me, when I read this, what I get is, in Genesis 6-4, the Nephilim were in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children unto them, colon, the same were the mighty men that were of old, the men of renown. So the Nephilim are the mighty men. The question here is, are the Nephilim partially angelic? Like, where does that come in? Um, obviously, if you watch the TV show Supernatural, they take the tact that, yes, Nephilim are part angel. Um, whereas the the more conservative translation is that these are th these two occurrences are either unrelated that we're getting in Genesis 6 at first. We're getting, oh, by the way, the angels had kids with humans. And then unrelated to that. Or that sons of God does not mean angels. It means rulers and mighty men taking from the commoners. Uh, generally, it's decided. Yeah, it's like it's like decided they, they took from the people as well as married uh, uh, people that were you know women that were married. They just took whoever they saw attractive, as many as they wanted, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And Lamech is the first person in the Bible to uh, be recorded as having multiple wives. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Um, so that so what's your your take on that then because i've heard a lot of people who have said that mono uh, monogamy does not come into judaism until like david no. I, I i'm uh, also here... of the opinion that it does not but... <laughs> so take leviticus eighteen eighteen. it says you should not have a wife to her sister mm -hmm. uh that's actually uh, a lot of scholars have argued that that's a jewish idiom that means you cannot take a sister wife you should not even be taking a second wife so it's actually an idiom and if you see the parallel phrase, a man to his brother, it's tend to be used, you know, just as a, it tends to just basically mean don't take another mm -hmm. or here's another. So Genesis, Leviticus 18, 18 may very well be outlawing a second wife. Uh, also, of course, Genesis 2, 24, you know, a man shall leave his father and mother, two shall become one flesh. Um, also in my Genesis 1 to 11 series, I note a lot of commentators note that when anytime polygamy shows up in Genesis, it's always narrated in a way so that it's painted in a negative light. Yeah. Lemek, for example. Abraham has strife between Sarah and Hagar. Then you see Jacob taking two wives, causing jealousy, hatred, all these issues. So the authors are trying to say here is like, look, anytime you take more than one wife, bad things happen. Mm -hmm. Don't do it. Right. Yeah, that's – I think that's the best way to interpret it too. A lot of – that's the, also the issue with taking things out of context as many people often do. I've noticed you've done – a few times I've seen you point out the way that Paul is taken out of context in Corinthians so much. Um, you know, yeah. the, the idea that women aren't supposed to be speaking in church and stuff like that. And he, I, I think, uh, one of the ways I explain this to people who are scholars of something that is, for example, scholars of history or something is I, I link them to Aquinas and the way that he does his 
dialogues and his the way he poses a question and then answers it it's not that he's saying two things that contradict it's the the first thing he says is people say this and i say to you this that's very much the same structure that we get with a lot of christ's teachings a lot of his apostles teachings all of that yeah Um, yeah, well paul's quoting the corinthians a lot in the first letter to the corinthians and so first corinthians 14 is another place where that happens yes um and so you know just to give people the the issue with um job to because we brought that into it uh there's three specific mentions in job of sons of god benai elohim mm-hmm. um which are in one six where it is now it came to pass on the day when the sons of god came to present themselves before jehovah that satan also came among them uh job i think it's two one again it came to pass on the day when the sons of god came to present themselves before jehovah which implies that this is actually you know god has a weekly meeting with the angels which i think is just a funny structure um, I, yeah. I know it would be blasphemous, but I do feel like a, like internet short or miniseries where you just have like the office, but it's with heaven. I think that could be really funny if it was done properly. I would love to see a depiction of the archangel Michael essentially saying to Lucifer, yeah. who is like, Hey, yeah, no, I just, uh, I really think that, uh, humanity is not like what all it's cracked up to be. And then Michael's just like, we'll circle back to that later. Exactly. <laughs> I think Babylon, Babylon B could pull it off. Um, they can do yeah. it. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, this is because in the Bible, there's a divine council theology happening. Mm-hmm. Michael Heiser talks a lot about this, and he argues the point we're seeing in Genesis 1-2 was that humans were meant to be brought into the divine council as well before the rebellion. Uh, so it's this idea that God has this sort of divine council, uh, various uh, other Elohim that are in his divine council and aid him in whatever he needs to do. Yeah, and that's, that's another one I want to touch on, Elohim as a term. There's a lot of people who look at that and they go, well, that's a plural. It's uh, not, always. How do you explain it? It's a concretized abstract plural. So what it is is it's actually a plural word, but it's been used uh, to like uh, refer to singular things. Mm-hmm. It sh- we know this from the verbs that are paired with it. Uh, like, for example, in Genesis 1, it, it's, Elohim shows up, but the verbs and the pronouns are singular. So it's obviously referring to a single deity there. Now, it's, a con- it's, like, it's like our English word for sheep. It can be used singular or plural. It's a concretized abstract plural. Mm-hmm. It's a plural word that can be used singular as well. Same with Elohim. Uh, it does not refer to multiple deities every time you see it. It depends on how it's being used in the passage. So in Deuteronomy 32, you'll see it being used singular and plural, depending on if you're talking about God or the, you know, the other Elohim out there. Um, yes. Sorry, I was just reading something. Uh, we have a question in the chat. Somebody said, Genesis 2.1, that's the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. Uh, they're saying that this was before Adam was created. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my view, yeah. Is that your view, is that Adam and Eve are not the first humans? Uh, a- absolutely. I go over this in my Genesis series. The reason why is that Toledo structure in Genesis 2.4, mm-hmm. uh, it shows up about 10 times in Genesis, and it always introduces what comes after, after mm-hmm. the person. So think of like, these are the generations of Noah. Yes. introduces what comes after that so that would imply that genesis 2 is a sequel to genesis 1 it's saying here we chapter 2 here's what's going to happen next and then it picks up in this specific land called eden god makes a garden and he needs a priest and a priestess to work it there in fact the word for helper for eve in that passage is very interesting it doesn't really refer to like hey helper it's more robert alter who's a hebrew scholar says it refers to being a, like a military sustainer Mm-hmm. Like basically like a general or a captain of some sort. So Eve was a pivotal part there. Uh, talks about them having priestly activities in there. So Genesis 2 is sort of like 
God sort of orders the cosmos in Genesis 1, and then Genesis 2, he hones in on Eden. I'm going to create a temple space here, and I need priests and a priestess to work it. Mm-hmm. And so, so the view then would be that Adam and Eve are a particular creation of God rather than being the first man and woman because he wanted two people who were going to serve a specific purpose. Yeah, or they could have been elected, depending on how you understand that language. I covered in my video on Genesis 2. It could very, very well be a specific creation point uh, that was unique. It could also just be an election point. Uh, that's very much the type of language you see when it comes to the Imago Dei. It's about mm-hmm. this electing, giving you a special role, this kind of thing. And I argued in my Genesis 2 video that maybe that's the same thing happening here with Adam and Eve. So then what would be your take on, would you go from the, the point of view that the creation of man in general in Genesis 1 could be thousands and thousands of years earlier than what happens in Genesis 2? or No, because my view is following scholars like John Walton and Robert D. Holmstead that what's actually going on here is more about God ordering the cosmos to be his temple. Mm-hmm. 7 is very much this idea of temple inauguration. Uh, like the ordinary, we see this throughout the Bible, especially with uh, Solomon's temple. There was like seven, seven, seven shows up a lot in there. Uh, even the Gudea cylinders talk about a temple inauguration stages of seven. So God structures the cosmos in seven, seven days to be his cosmos. Uh, so generally I'm taking more Walton's view. That's more of a complex, long topic I could go into. But it's this idea that God is structuring the cosmos. He's barahing things. Barah refers to giving something a new activity. Doesn't really necessarily refer to material creation. And so, uh, I guess another thing there would be um, the, in in general, just in terms of time frames, um, the the creation. Do you believe that's six twenty four hour days, or are we looking at six days as a separation of time rather than? So, well, my my view is a little bit more complex than that. Um, Again, I go over my Genesis series, but I mean, like, basically, it's the idea that what's not going on in Walton argues what's going on in Genesis 1 and not necessarily material creation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this idea that God is sort of structuring the cosmos to be his temple. Uh, he is sort of, he comes onto the scene and he makes everything function according to a divine purpose for theological purposes. Mm-hmm. Like you see it in, for example, in the fourth day, the suns and moon are given for times and seasons and marking these things. Uh, language in the Hebrew, they've argued, as well as scholars like uh, J. Richard Middleton, even Heiser in some places, it's very much more about assigning functions or giving functions to things in Genesis 1, not necessarily about this idea of material creation. Now, I do believe, you know, from obviously plays like John 1, God created everything materially. I just argue that if we understand Genesis 1 in its ancient Near Eastern context, that's not really what's going on here. This is more about the Hebrews showing, look who's really ruling the cosmos. It's Yahweh. He's the one who's controlling everything. This is his temple. You pagans, you don't get it with your pagan gods. You got it all backwards. There's only one God, and the entire cosmos is his temple. Mm-hmm. So would it then be that the the creation... So how does the creation happen, then, I guess, is the question. If you're looking at Genesis... And this is the way I learned about it in college, by the way, um, is the same way you're discussing it right now. Uh, are you looking at it as God just speaks everything into existence all at once and then orders it, and that's the six days, and the six days are actually ordination? Or is it that God creates it over time, but that time isn't recorded? My, my view on Genesis 1 uh, is that it's just not even talking about material creation. Mm-hmm. It, the Bible affirms in places like John 1 uh, that God created everything, but it is silent on how, sci- how that happened scientifically. Mm-hmm. It's more about focusing in Genesis 1 on how he is reigning over the cosmos. This is how he rules. This is, everything is his, and he can structure it however he wants. 
So I would say the days in Genesis are more symmetrical. Day one correlates to day four. You have the lights created with the luminaries. Day two correlates to day five. You have the sky and the water correlates to the animals therein. Day three, land, all the land animals, that kind of thing. So it's more of a symmetrical ordering of things, not necessarily a uh, chronological. chronological order. Gotcha. Um, that's interesting. I, I haven't heard it taken to that that direction before. Um, where... Have you uh, read John Walton's book, The Lost World of Genesis 1? Because that's not. where he details it. Yeah, it's a yeah. very interesting. But if you just watch my Genesis 1, my Genesis 1 to 11 series. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah I have two on Genesis 1, and I cover a lot of it there. Yeah. I, as for the, the flood itself, how literally do you take the story, and what is your opinion on when it happened? So my, I take it pretty literally as much as I think the text allows. I think there's hyperbole in it. So, for example, in Genesis 8, it says the top, it's 8-5, I think it is. It says the tops of the mountains were seen. Mm-hmm. So you see some dry land. But then if you go down to when dove when Noah releases the dove, it says, For the dove found no place to rest its foot, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. Yeah. Oh, wait, I thought mountains were seen. So mm-hmm. it's hyperbole. I tend to take it as a pretty big regional flood happened at the end of the Younger Dryas period. Okay. There's actually yep. some interesting geological data that actually shows at that point in our history when the Younger Dryas, I think Meltwater Pulse Meltwater 1B, Pulse 1B. I think 1B. it is. Yeah, the, the entire region of Mesopotamia turned into, like, a mega lake for, like, a year. Yeah, that's that's the exact same tack I've taken numerous times on the mm-hmm. show. So I'm glad we're in agreement on that, because I, I get pushback on that one from a lot of people who are like, oh, well, if you look at the, the timing of the generations, it has to have been more around the time that the Mesopotamians were writing down Gilgamesh. And I'm like, that that's not possible. That's completely physically impossible that that happened. Yeah. Um, so, so do you then think that the what? Because that then begs the question: What's going on in Genesis with the and Adam when he was a hundred years old? Had uh, it might be one hundred and twenty. Um, has uh, you know Abel and Seth and Cain, and then they live another hundred some years and have children, and then they live a hundred some years. What's your take on that? So my view is basically these are idealized numbers. If you go through it, every single number in there basically ends in very specific numbers it'll end in like a zero two seven five these kinds of things mm-hmm. uh kenton spark says the odds of this happening where all the ages coincidentally end in a zero two five seven or nine is point zero 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 six percent possible mm-hmm. it's these are idealized ages and in my genesis on my video in genesis 5 i go into this and why these are idealized numbers to give uh honor to the patriarchs uh mm-hmm. i think it's lloyd bailey as i cite in the video he compares the genealogy to the reigns of kings we see in chronicles mm-hmm. and uh samuel kings all of those reigns end in zero one two three four five six seven eight nine mm-hmm. uh, they all they get all the endings there uh, but for some reason in genesis 5 we don't so he's arguing that the reigning of kings in these later periods are obviously literal reignings, but in these earlier ages, these are symbolic mathematical age formula type mm-hmm. things. And it's also, you could divide them in a sexagesimal system, which is a Babel, typical Babylonian system where, you know, we have a decimal system, multiples mm-hmm. of 10, 10, 20, 30. They did multiples of 60. So 60, 120, 180, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ages very much fit with that idea. Yeah, and there's and a so lot of like... My base, breakups of like for example moses lives 40 years in egypt and then uh 40 years in the desert and then 40 years in canaan right um yeah so there's a lot of that kind of stuff yeah where they just these coincidences that yeah you have to almost have to be 
like writing uh why am i blanking on words right now uh well, writing devices that's what i was looking for in fact if you take all of the ages not mm -hmm. not the not the time period from when they had their son but if you take the ages so the age of adam the age of seth enosh all these ages mm -hmm. and you add them up you get twelve thousand six hundred uh between adam and moses mm -hmm. so and as you know 12 which would one, be about two, six, right also for younger dryas well, I wouldn't say that's an exact chronology, but uh, if you look known as Revelations, mm -hmm. there's another idealized number, which is 1,260. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a multiple of that uh, in, in the Genesis account, and it's usually referring to God preparing. It's like a time of exile, time of completion, mm -hmm. another idealized number. And if you add up all the ages from Adam to Moses, you get this idealized number. So then to what extent do you think that these are um, – so, so I'm guessing you don't take the belief that Adam actually lived 900 years. No. So then there can't have just been 10 patriarchs from Adam to Noah, right? Right. And um, Richard Hess has written a paper on this, was specifically looking at Genesis 11. And he notes the language of like father to son in that passage, a little bit more vague. It can imply gaps. And he appeals to cultural context, biblical context as well. Uh, this same kind of idea probably shows up there as well. Um, not to do too much of a hard segue, but since you, since you mentioned Michael Heiser, who I like a lot, he's one of my favorite biblical scholars. Um, mm -hmm. another one who, uh, you know, is in the, in the social media sphere, in the social media space, uh, is Dan McClellan. Mm -hmm. Curious yeah. what your thoughts are on him, because he and I historically have not gotten along. <laughs> no, me either. I, I thought we were getting along at first because him and I were going, kind of going back and forth on Deuteronomy 32 and then. We yeah, had like yep, eight or nine replies back and forth. And then like towards the end, he just started like he I don't know what I did wrong to upset him, but he just seemed like he's like I he started accusing me of attacking him or doing things I shouldn't have. And I was like, what, 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 what happened? Like I was trying to be charitable here. And so then we had a back and forth on polygamy as well. Mm -hmm. And with Leviticus 7, 17, 17. And I mean, I think he's a very intelligent, very brilliant guy. I just think I, I don't know. I, it was just very weird how that degraded and i didn't see it coming i don't know what the problem was i just i was really turned off by him with with that attitude i guess yeah he uh, where he and i got uh got into it was about uh hamash um who he basically implies uh, i'm trying to remember the exact verse but it's where the israelites are laying siege against the moabites and god tells them simply trust in me and you will win you know it doesn't matter mm -hmm. what they do it doesn't matter how strong they are trust in me, I will bring you to victory. And then the, he took the, I think there's a phrase, like there's a divine fury from the Moabites. And he took that yeah. to imply that Kamash was actually strong enough to overpower Yahweh. Um, and yeah. and I, I pointed out that that is using a ton of eisegetic reading and you're like, you got to go and dig for that to get that result. You're, you're, you're and right. And I'm me. trying to find a page. Oh, he blocked you. He wow. Just, that's, that's he just new. blocked me. So people, so That's, he's gotten tagged more than anybody else. He's gotten tagged in that video about the sons of God issue, which I feel like he would probably be on my side with that, um, given his propensity to believe that Judaism was originally polytheistic, uh, which I don't yeah. like at all. Um, I've pointed out to many people that it doesn't make any sense that the Jews would develop Canaanite mythology into a distilled form while in Babylon. That makes no sense at all. Um, no, and I, I agree with you on there. I mean, I, I actually did a whole series on this. I did a video called Polytheism in the Bible, and then I did a video called Israel's Revolutionary Monotheism, where I point out there's like 
12 to 20 certain facts about we know about the Hebrew Bible that make it very unlikely that it could not have evolved from polytheism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it fits more with this idea of this a revolutionary change. Yeah. Uh, where like a, like a reformer like Moses comes on and says, no, you're worshiping God wrong. Here's how we do it. Yeah, it's, it's very much to me seemed like the similarities between Canaanite polytheism and Judaism are more related to the fact that it was two different groups with two different ideologies practicing within the same region. And at some points or another, there was just some osmosis and some syncretism going on rather than it being that, you know, Yahweh was originally a minor cult deity within the Canaanite pantheon and that it moved out into its own thing. Especially because the Yahweh of the Hebrew Bible and the Yahweh of the Canaanite pantheon are only barely similar to one another in that they're both warriors. Yeah, it's it's quite a stretch, especially, and even scholars like Mark Smith. Mark Smith believes Mm -hmm. Yahweh was originally a son of El. But he'll go to places like Deuteronomy 32 and says, you can't get that from this passage. This is clearly saying Yahweh's already on high. He already is El. The author probably thought of um as l and l as elion as different titles mm-hmm. uh so there oh i just found the paper on the, the meaning of second kings 327 by george m harton mm-hmm. he makes a very good case that this is not kemosh defeating yahweh that's not what's going on here yeah i'm trying to find the exact uh where is it um but yeah, when the moabites arrived video... at the israeli encampment the israelis got up and attacked them the moabites ran away from the israelis who followed them into the land as they continued their pursuit against moab they destroyed the cities um stone walls remained surrounding kirhar seth only until the archers surrounded and attacked that city when the king of moab realized that the battle was going to strongly against him he took 700 expert swordsmen to attempt to break through to the king of edom but was unable to unable to do so so he took his firstborn son whom he intended to reign after him and offered him up as a burnt offering on the wall which by the way is just metal as hell um <laughs> Uh, there yeah. subsequently came great anger against Israel, so they abandoned the attack and returned to their homeland. So the ASV doesn't even say divine fury or divine wrath. It says great anger. Yeah, and the, the way that uh, George M. Harton notes is this going on in this passage is that it's not – if you read what Yahweh says, it says does not say they're going to get Moab. It says you will get all the towns and cities, which they then and go do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they, they, they told to be faithful and just hold a Yahweh. It says divine fury or divine wrath came on Israel. Mm-hmm. Basically what he says – Harton says is that uh, Israel was sort of Israel coward. They didn't trust Yahweh. They mm-hmm. turned and run, ran because they thought fear was going to come from Chemosh, and they should not have considered him as a threat. Yeah. That's what Harton argues. Do you believe that these deities of the other pantheons are total fabrications, or do you think that this is um, something akin to uh, you know Satan and other rebellious yeah. angels that might have come down and told these people, "I am your God." I, I tend to lean that way, and the reason is is because of like Exodus 12, where uh, God says, I will bring judgment on all the Elohim of mm-hmm. Egypt, sort of implying that there are divine beings there that he is going to take judgment upon. Uh, and, of course, he is the creator of them. And, of course, then you have uh, Deuteronomy 32, where Yahweh divides up the nations, gives them all out, and then he has his own specific people for himself. So do you think he's giving them to other – would you define those other beings as gods or as angels? So, I mean, we would define them as angels, but the word Elohim does not really mean God. Mm-hmm. It can be refer. It basically refers to anything in the spirit realm. So when mm-hmm. Samuel is brought up by the necromancer, um, he's called an Elohim, but he's just a dead person. Uh, demons are called Elohim in Deuteronomy 32 as well. So it's just, I think specifically, I think it's like Shadam or something uh, like that. Uh, but so 
it's just as a general word for anything in the spirit realm. So yeah, there were multiple Elohim. We in the New Testament period refer to them as like angels or demons. But in the ancient world, they would just call them all Elohim. So Yahweh is an Elohim, but no other Elohim is like Yahweh. He is above all. He is the highest of them. Yeah, and that's that's why I've looked at it too, is like the idea that, you know, it's, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say stuff like what, um, you know, the, the people who say that the Israelis were henotheistic or polytheistic or any of those things. But I, I don't think that it's, against Christian scripture and doctrine to suggest that there were other celestial beings, there were other divine beings who might have left heaven to go rule over mankind um, in other places. And that's why you have stories of, for example, uh, with Ragnarok in the Norse mythology, you've got all the Norse gods and then they're all wiped away by a massive fire and then a flood, which totally matches Genesis if you take the idea that what we're talking about is the end of the Younger Dryas period, which we haven't discovered it yet, but it seems like the most likely explanation for why there was a massive sea level rise is probably meteor impact. Um, oh, yeah, there's like actually some interesting evidence came out recently, but yeah, it's not been fully dated yet. Yeah. Um, as far as the age of the Bible goes, there's been a mm. long-running belief that the the first time any of this was really written down, that the earliest extant versions we have point to it being canonized to an extent during the Babylonian exile. And that that's because that's the oldest writing we have that we can really pin as Jewish. But with this discovery of this little curse tablet on Mount Ebal, that may be pushed back. My opinion is that this could be a, an indication that as early as 1200 BC, the Jews were writing, which means that while we may not have any extant versions of it, we could be dealing with the idea that the Jews were writing down their theology much, much earlier and therefore yeah, would have been uh, less influenced by Babylon. I, mean, I, I would tell people to go, I mean, the best evidence that the Pentateuch is early mm -hmm. uh, is the internal evidence. So if you go to, I did a, I did a video, I gave archaeological evidence for the, the Exodus called Exodus Rediscovered. Mm -hmm. Then I did part two called the Wandering, Exodus Rediscovered, the Wandering Period. Mm -hmm. And in the Wandering Period, I gave evidence that a lot of the structures we see in, for example, Deuteronomy, fit with Hittite treaties from the late Bronze Age. Uh, a lot of cultural markers fit up with that period as well, like with the terms of like biblical feasts were given, mm -hmm. the Ark of the Covenant, all these really interesting religious ideas. That indicates that this is a very, very, very old tradition going back to the late Bronze Age, mm -hmm. not that this is something that would have been written during the Babylonian exile. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would say that the best evidence would be internal evidence uh, when it comes to things like that. When it comes to that curse tablet, I am so hopeful mm -hmm. that is accurate. What people need to remember, though, is that the actual high-resolution images of what they found have not been released. They re did a press release first without releasing their data, which is it's a, that's a red sketchy. flag. It is, and the people that did it, they have they've had they, it's called ABR. It's Associates for Biblical Research. God bless their souls and their hearts. I think they're in the right place, but they have a history of promoting things that have been turned out to be utter crap. Mm -hmm. Like uh, they they promoted Douglas Petrovich's early proto-Sinaitic inscriptions, where he claimed he found an inscription of Moses. Mm -hmm. No one's convinced of this. Only Douglas Petrovich and ABR are convinced of this. Uh, even really conservative scholars like Alan Millard have like, no, this is crap. Yeah. <laughs> Don't believe this stuff, stuff. So I really hope they found something, but I'm not going to say get excited or, you know, to you know dismiss it until they actually release their high yeah. resolution images and actual scholars beyond them can actually evaluate it. Yeah, I've, I've been disclaimering everything I say about it with this is yet to be peer reviewed, but if it's true, it would imply so on and so forth. So, my, and, and yeah. 
for me, what I've pointed to as great evidence that uh, Exodus was being written around the time that it actually happened uh, is early in the book when it says that the Jews helped build the treasure cities of Pithom and Pyramses, um, which we know Pyramses was built during the reign of uh, the uh, Ramses the Third, right? Is Ramses the Second? Ramses II. It was it was started with Seti the First, and then he sort of completed it. Yeah, so that means that Ramses the Second was either the pharaoh they left under or probably the one right before the pharaoh they left under, um, in my opinion. So do you, do you take the same line that the exodus probably would have happened around 1200, give or take 30 years? I, I take it to be around 1265. Uh, my reasoning is this because the city of Avaris, which was two kilometers south of P. Ramesses, mm -hmm. was basically abandoned midway through the Ramesside period. Okay. Uh, Manfred B. Tech will say that there was... They basically abandoned the site, the Semites, the Semitic population that was there. They went elsewhere. Oh, we don't know entirely. Uh, well, he says we don't know, but I would make an argument they went to Canaan, of course. Uh, but it was the native Ramazite population used the site as a cemetery after that. Mm -hmm. So we can actually see the change from people living there to it being used as a cemetery. Um, around 1265 is also when Ramesses II's oldest son dies mm -hmm. uh, mysteriously, and we're not entirely sure why. Uh, we don't. We've not really found his body yet, so you know that's another issue. They claim they found his skull, but that's that, there's no published data. That was just a press release, and they never confirmed it. Uh, but so there's that. And then of course, about a generation later, after Avaris is abandoned, generation later in Canaan, there's a population explosion. Mm -hmm. Like entire sites, like uh, for example, in um, West Manassas, there was about twelve sites or so, and then all of a sudden. Uh, there's 200 occupied sites in Ephraim, Samaria. There was like a couple dozen. Then there's all, all of a sudden 131 occupied sites. Mm -hmm. Also, these new occupied sites in Canaan lack pig bones, even though the oh. earlier Canaanite sites had pig bones. And the city of Avaris, the city of Avaris, also lacked pig bones. Interesting. Mm -hmm. But when so, but the order not to eat pork doesn't come until. Pentateuch, right? Right, right. But you you would expect it to have been a pretty cultural base already. Right. Makes uh, sense. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're building on what they already know, and they're just formulating it more. There was a pig taboo, I would argue, earlier in Israel's mm. history uh, that was just codified in I wouldn't the, be surprised the if there was some sort of, like, trichinosis outbreak or something, and they were like, okay, no more pork. Mm. Um, well, I mean, it makes yeah. sense if... Because, I mean, when you look at the, the story of Genesis, when... when Jacob is coming into Canaan, or not into Canaan, into Egypt. It says Jacob brought with him 70 souls. So it's not a ton of people. Um, and, you know, bridging off of that, what would you say, what, what would you estimate the population that would have been leaving Egypt with Moses would have been? So it depends on the scholar. You're, so Kenneth Kitchen says like thirty to 50,000. Uh, David Falk, who's an Egyptologist, he helped me make my uh, documentary Exodus Rediscovered, where we give all the archaeological evidence for the Exodus, some of the stuff I've, I've been covering here. Um, he says maybe a, a little bit over 100,000 based on – he's estimating it based on the size of Avaris and based on the population explosion that happens at the beginning of the Iron Age. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's basically saying that based on this, it could have been maybe 100,000, and that's because also a bunch of mixed multitude went up with Israel back to Canaan. Mm -hmm. my, my issue with it has been um, trying to reconcile the fact that there's no recording – of the Exodus, there's also no recording of the Jews getting to Egypt, but that makes a lot more sense. Um, you know, they wouldn't notice even probably a couple thousand people coming into Egypt from Canaan. 
because Egypt was a, an, an empire. It was massive. It was multicultural for the time. Um, you know, obviously, we wouldn't consider it an empire in today's terms. It would be more of a kingdom. But at the time, you're looking at something that was multicultural. It projected force. Um, that that at, for the time it was an empire, they probably wouldn't notice a thousand, two thousand people coming and going. But a hundred thousand people would probably have been recorded. So if it's not, what why what is your reasoning there? Well, it was the Merneptah Stele actually mentions Israel's in Canaan in 1208 BCE. So they they say they're there. They're like, hey, they're here, um, and we've got them under control, guys. No worry. Hint hint. I mean, they're obviously every Egyptologist says the Merneptah Stele is exaggerating. So they do mention them in Israel. They do. I think the reason why we don't exaggerate a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have to also remember during this time when we're, when the conquest is happening, Egypt is on a decline. Uh, something happened where they just declined. Uh, the Great Libyan War Stele of Merneptah mm -hmm. says that Libyans invaded from the west and made it all the way to the Nile. Okay, that would not have happened under Ramesses mm -hmm. a generation earlier. That would they would have been repelled much quicker. Meanwhile, the peoples from the east are putting pressure on Merneptah as well. So they, they wouldn't have been able to, to allow... Of course a conquest could have happened in the hill countries. Mm -hmm. uh, Egypt was dealing with their own problems. They're not going to send an entire army to, you know, to re-enslave the Hebrews and bring them back. They just didn't have the manpower at this mm -hmm. point. I uh, they, were, they were definitely on When you read the actual lines that deal specifically with Israel... Sorry not to interrupt you, but um, what, what you get is... Uh, it says, Hati is pacified. The Canaan has been plundered into every sort of woe. Ashkelon has been overcome, Gezer has been captured, Yenoam is made non-existent, Israel is laid to waste, and his seed is not. Which is definitely, is, is different from the way they're discussing the other things. They're discussing that as an individual, and since Jacob is also called Israel, that makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've yeah, heard people use the Merneptah Stella actually as something to debunk the Exodus. This is an interesting take on it. Um, for, you know, the and, idea that, well, if Israel was being laid to waste, it obviously wasn't in Egypt. But it makes sense that, you know, they would be talking about people who went up out of Egypt. Yeah, I mean, they don't ever mention the Exodus. But then again, you got to think, I mean, the, the, the Hebrews lived in the Nile Delta. Most of our stuff comes from hieroglyphics where they're not going to mention defeats or like inscri or, you know, papyrus from that out, southern right? Egypt. Yeah, I mean, the, we found the scriptorium in Avaris. And there was like all these seals and all the documents that had brought it away because it's a very wet region. It's yeah. not like southern Egypt where it's very dry. So... I mean, there, most not, Kenneth Kitchen will say ninety nine percent of the papyrus just simply rotted away. We just don't simply have all the evidence that we need. I point that and they're in hieroglyphic descriptions. It's, it's proper. It's propaganda. Donald Redford just says flat out, "This is all propaganda." You can't well, yeah, if take you, this all. If you read anything from that period, and what I constantly try and explain to people, and a lot of them just refuse to see it this way because they're not historians, is just because we don't have written documentation of something does not mean that it didn't happen. For most of history, first of all, writing was extremely expensive because you not only had to train and educate people to do it, then you also had to get the right materials and you had to store those materials. And it took, you know, you it, to copy anything was an extensive task that took just as long to write out the original. Um, the reason that we have so little uh, in terms of documentation from the early Middle Ages is that in order to write, you had to, you know, get a whole thing of lambskin and put it into a book together. Otherwise, it wasn't mm. going to survive. Mm. Um, yeah. So you yeah. got to think we we still have not even uncovered everything. They're still excavating the site of Hazor, which shows a fiery destruction around this exact time, same time as the conquest. Mm -hmm. But they're still trying to find the uh, library there, the archives. They haven't found them yet, and they've been excavating for decades now. Like it takes a while sometimes, and some we may, we may never find the archives there. But uh, I mean, we've just not found everything either. 
Yeah, lack of evidence is never a good thing to base an argument on. Like, you got to have actual evidence to the contrary. Really quickly, before we start wrapping up here, considering it is 8 o'clock, I just want to give the suggestion to the chat that we will shortly be switching over to Super Chat time, which is when we answer questions that you guys pose as Super Chats in the comments. main reason we do the Super Chat suggestions is pretty much just because it's a lot easier to follow, uh, especially with how active you guys have been tonight. So it's going to allow us to be able to pick, you know, the most relevant uh, questions and generally, you know, if it's within reason, respectful, and, you know, inciting uh, calm and civil discussion, we will accept it. Uh, granted, you know, if you have a funny joke, we might read it yeah. even nonetheless. Anyway. And of course, to, you know, just full transparency, it is part of how we fund yes. the studio and the show and everything is is, is through the Super Chats. So, yeah, you know, it, 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 it supports us and it makes life a little easier to make sure that we get everybody's important questions answered. Yeah. So, uh, I guess, yeah, let's just. You know, well, why don't you guys finish up, up yeah, yeah. what you guys were talking about and then we'll switch over once a few of them accumulate. Yeah. So. I guess final thing to talk about here, because it's it's the elephant in the room when you're talking about the Exodus, that story about Moses parting the Red Sea. What's your what's your take? Mm. So, uh, I mean, uh, if you read the text, it says a strong wind blew the sea over all night. So it wasn't like, you know, walls of water yeah. come up. There's this sort of like a wind process that's moving them. And then... Art when... has caused so many problems. <laughs> so... Yeah, it definitely has, unfortunately. So it's this idea that they walk on dry land, the wind mm-hmm. stop, come back, and takes over the Egyptians. Now, to be clear, I think it's very hyperbolic. I don't think the pharaoh drowned in the Red Sea. I don't think the Bible claims he did. Yeah, I don't Even very conservative scholars like Douglas Petrovich, who were like ultra-conservative, say, yeah, the Bible never says pharaoh drowned in the Red Sea. Don't worry. Uh, so Ramesses could have returned to Egypt. It says, actually, that, uh, that you know when their wheels were getting clogged up, that, that they turned and fled. The Egyptians started to flee at this mm-hmm. point. So as the waters are coming back, it probably took a large portion of them out but i mean the front where Ramesses is leading probably in a couple others got out mm-hmm. now it does use hyperbole to say all of them were destroyed but i mean yeah. this shows up in genesis it's like all the world came to buy bread from joseph I mean, really even yeah, people in sense. you know scandinavia so i mean generally speaking it's it's this idea i think it's this idea that um strong wind is blowing it all back it's been kind of ruined in art mm-hmm. people want to know more about all this evidence for the exodus on my channel i have exodus rediscovered I have Exodus Rediscover the Wandering Period. And then on July 8th, I have Exodus Rediscover the Conquest coming out soon. And that'll be the most data I have for the Exodus. All right. Well, I that's, I mean... Everything you wanted to talk about? That is everything I wanted to talk about. Fair Obviously, enough. I could keep having this conversation forever. Uh, but, um, I mean, feel free to continue. We've only got two but, yeah. uh, Super Chats right now. Oh, One boy. of them is from specifically... Here we go. Uh, Tanuki Tatsuya uh, for $1.99 saying, Financial troubles, but doing what I can with a big like laughy face essentially <laughs> saying like trying to support as much as possible we appreciate it and then one more from also it it would really make aiden very happy if all of you present right now would smash the like button um yes. he's having a really rough day and that would really cheer him up um i i was sweating a lot earlier filming for uh the thing that will be coming yeah. out soon our our new missing 411 yes video uh don't don't wear a leather jacket in 95 degree weather. Uh, if you enjoy, you know, being comfortable. If not, then by all means. Uh, but the only other next donation goal was fan design a tattoo for Thornberry. Uh, where was that? I uh, directly below the super chat you just read. Hmm, interesting. Um, Didn't see that on here. Yeah, I was going to read the one from Plaz about uh, from ten for ten dollars. Thank you very much. It says new Lore Lodge donation goal. Ha- Aiden and Aiden, uh, do- Aiden and Aiden 
and co do a skit about heaven's weekly upper management meetings i think <laughs> and co means like yeah i know what you mean <laughs> all that uh that would be fun that would I'd be fun to do I'll, I'll i'll get to work writing a uh, a script for that we'll have to figure out who we're going to cast as who yeah that's true um gotta do it like respectfully you know uh <laughs> i feel like i could slide very well in as gabriel that's possible um <laughs> Yeah, we got some people in here saying that they agree that Adam was, like, the high priest. Um, mm -hmm. One guy... Yeah, that's that... very much the language of the New Testament. I mean, Jesus is the priest who succeeded. Adam is the priest who failed. So why do you think that we've gotten into this, uh, this you know, cultural space where Adam is the first human? Um, I, I think it is... Uh, there, there was a lot of early church fathers that did say that as well. Uh, there's no definitive place where it ever says Adam was the first human. People go to 1 Corinthians 15. Mm -hmm. But that same passage also says that Jesus is the second human. So it's like, okay, this is not necessarily literal. Uh, so that that kind of idea. But I mean, uh, I, I think when we actually read Genesis 1 and then realize Genesis 2 is a sequel, mm -hmm. it, it just simply follows that he is not necessarily the first human. Makes sense. I, I've always also struggled with that. Like, you know, how could it possibly be that there were no other people but Noah? And how could it possibly be that... Adam, because the just the genetic issues, and I, I'm glad that we that that you're you and I are for all for the disagreements we do have. I'm glad that we're in the same spot of like you do need to take scientific fact into account when you read these things, and that where the Bible contradicts things that are possible, you, you got to look for a way that the Bible is actually being symbolic in that case, because otherwise, mm -hmm. you know, I I would prefer to sit back and go, yeah, the Bible is hyperbolic rather than the Bible is wrong. And I think the people that just dig their heels in on the Bible is literal and factual in every single case. I, I just think it's not a winning argument, and it's only yeah. going to drive people who are, you know, very rationally minded into into atheism and agnosticism. Yep. Um, we did get a bunch more super tests. I, I did really quickly want to say, uh, from Faithius Atheist, uh, he said he got tickets to see your archaeology event yesterday at Viva's Coffee, but then his kids had a last-minute marching band show. Uh, sorry, sorry, man. Sorry, I missed you though. Appreciate it though. Um, appreciate that. Uh, but yeah, I was at a coffee house here in Tucson giving a presentation on the evidence for the Exodus. Gotcha. Yeah, that's cool. Sorry, you missed me. Um, if you ever wanna, if you ever wanna make up for it, let me know. I'll see if we can get a beer or something. Uh, all right, cool. So the next question that we got was from a very apt name, Bible Theory for four ninety nine. <laughs> Thank you very much. It says. Uh, who were the angels that abandoned their proper dwelling in Jude 6, the angels that gave birth to the Nephilim? Right. And I, um, I talk about this in my video on Genesis clear, 6. I do think this was a question mark. Yeah. It was a question yeah. mark. Yeah. yeah. I do think this is a reference to the book of Enoch, very much so. I talk about it in my video on the Nephilim. Um, I think this is definitely, he's referencing the book of Enoch. Uh, generally, though, I follow Heiser on this, surprisingly. I think uh, is that um, Jude is giving all these different theological examples to try to mm -hmm. encourage people to keep their faith. And he also quotes from another apocryphal work. The Testament of Moses. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's just drawing from a, hey, here, you know about this example. You know about this example. You know about this example. That kind of thing is what Jude is doing. That's my view. To, for those who don't know the passages, he has also held in eternal chains those angels who did not keep their position but abandoned their assigned place. They are held in deepest darkness for judgment on the great day. And it's times like that. Those are actually the passages I point to when people tell me that Enoch is bullshit. But I'm like, at, there's parts of Enoch, Enoch that are not. Like, yeah. You know, saying that the giants were 10,000 feet tall, saying that, you know, the angels who came down to earth and abandoned their places were thrown into chains, well, that's also in other spots. Yeah. So, Did you have any thoughts or counter thoughts on that question? 
No, I'm I'm pretty much in the same spot. I think uh-huh. that there's a number of instances where Enoch is referenced by uh, you know prophets and apostles, and it's mm-hmm. just clearly there were parts of it that were agreed upon by Christ and by the prophets that yes, this did happen. Mm. Um, cool. Uh, next super chat from Kalen Kennedy for four ninety nine. Thank you. Uh, says don't have a question, just want to support. Much appreciated. Speaking of that. which, Kalen, uh, we both listened to the the intro music you wrote for us, and we just uh, like we we both love it. Gorgeous. We're so excited to start using it. It's literally it, it's motivating me to do the updated intro title card that I've been wanting to do, that I've been meaning to do, that I've had very little time to do. But now you're going to make me open up After Effects and Unreal Engine to get that done. So uh, We're going to have some fun. Thanks for, you know, uh, motivating me to soak up even more of my time with work. Uh, the next question is from Dr. Sheep for $5. An Australian $5 with a profile picture that is Palpatine as a doctor, which I just really love the little subtle details. They, they, they make all the difference. Uh, when do both of you guys think the biblical flood took place? I think we I mean, both kind of were that. in agreement yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, I guess just recap. Meltwater Pulse One B is is my belief that this is the this is the flooding event that is referenced by so many cultures around the world. Um, what to all of them probably would have been a local regional flood was in fact a global flood, and it was uh, it would have affected basically every single coastal city and settlement on the planet. Which yeah, have... We have corroborating evidence from that. From There's a paper I remember reading on Aboriginal tribes of Australia mm-hmm. all talking about a great flood in the distance past to sort of corroborate that at one point the coastlands just were flooded everywhere and they all yeah. swim to the new shore. It's over the course of 100 years you're getting sea level rise that is conservatively 100 to 200 feet and possibly up to 600, uh, 500, 600. So there's you know all sorts of possibilities that that could have been. I, I, I think that that's without a doubt. Unless we discover evidence of some much later flood, I think without a doubt that is the flood everybody's talking about. Mm. Uh, interesting, a very interesting point here. The Native Americans talk about a flood. They also talk about red-haired giants um, in the distant past, like pre-European contact. And I, I find that interesting because that does, in my opinion, also track with some of this stuff about Nephilim and stuff like that. Do you remember what specific uh, tribes... Uh, they were, I believe it was some of the Eastern ones. I can't remember the specific okay. ones off the top of my head. Could they uh, be references like Scandinavians, possibly? It could be, but the thing is, it's before any known contact between the two. Uh, there is an Inuit story of these creatures called Adlets, uh, where this one woman does not want to marry any, man, any men, so out of spite she marries a dog and has, I think it's 12 children. Six of them are white-skinned humans who she sends east. And then uh, six of them, or maybe five and five, are uh, half dog, and she sends those west. And one of the possibilities is that this was um, a story explaining why there were white-skinned Europeans on Greenland, because this is a story that comes from the Inuit people of Greenland. Uh, And then how they're describing people who lived on the land to the west as being these animalistic creatures possibly sort of in the tradition of skinwalkers where you're wearing the pelts of animals and stuff like that and would have given the appearance whereas they might not have done that as the same way as the continentals did uh the next super chat is ten dollars from plaz thank you very much says uh just got engaged this weekend and my fiance's dad gave me a john mayer cd figured tech aiden would enjoy that you're damn right i would i want to know which album it is <laughs> uh following that up jamie Ralston for two dollars said is sunday the new sabbath 
I think Sabbath is always Saturday. Sabbath's always been Saturday, is my understanding. Um, the reason that Christians go to church on Sundays and not Saturday, to my understanding, comes from just a, that it, it fit better with Roman tradition um, and that they were trying to avoid being killed. Uh, and meeting on Sunday gave them the freedom to do that because it wasn't you know, as obvious as Saturday and that the Romans already observed Sunday to a certain extent as the day of the sun god and therefore... Um, in my opinion, it's always that, yeah, it's the, the observance is the seventh day is the day on which God rested. So what day of the Sabbath is really matters more in terms of when you believe the week starts. So mm -hmm. if you're a, the week starts on Monday person, Sunday would be the Sabbath. But if you're a, the week starts on Sunday person, then Saturday would be the Sabbath. I think people who get into the nitty gritty of the two are being kind of unnecessarily nitpicky. Yeah. I don't know about you. What yeah, I mean, is on we, we know really Christians like Justin Martyr said that they were worshiping on Sunday. Revelations references. The Lord's Day, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Uh, Paul talks about the meeting on the first day of the week kind of thing. It's just Jesus rose on Sunday. They wanted to meet on the first day of the week. Remember that that's the day Jesus rose. Yeah, I've heard a number of explanations for it. Include, I think that's the one that makes the most sense. Jesus rose on Sunday, therefore we worship on Sunday. Um, Dumbest one is that they stole it from Mithraism, which is just utter, utter nonsense. My favorite is to this day that Christmas is Yule. Because the Christians oh, and should... the, the Christians and the Germans did not know who each other were when Christmas was placed onto the twenty fifth of December. Mm. All, all all of my fans know I have done so much video video stuff showing Christmas is not pagan at all. Nope. Like going into so much like old sources and everything, and yet to this day I still hear that nonsense. Yeah, I mean, and it's. It, the proximity of Saturnalia is the only possible pagan route you could take for it, especially because originally it was just a feast day. It wasn't anything special. There was no gift giving. There was none of that. It was just a feast day. It wasn't placed on the 25th until 336 AD, which is still too early for it to be Yule. So, it, See, it might be an earlier because Hippolytus of Rome in, in, in one of his interpretations on Daniel mentions that the Christians were meeting – or no, he mentions um, – uh, Jesus was, uh, he died on March 25th, and he died on the same day he was conceived. So you just count for nine man months, you get December yeah. 25th. I'm, I'm and not so, sure also, by that explanation, personally. Thomas Taley also notes that the Dontatus, which is a group that split around 306, kept all the feast days before their split. Mm -hmm. um, and they kept December, they kept Christmas on December 25th. So that implies yeah. Christians were keeping it before 306. Yeah, sorry, 336 is the uh, the date that it was officially first recognized by the Catholic Church yeah. as Christmas, but that probably, and, and coming from the historian background, because obviously you know, theology is an, an interest, but it, and, and my minors were in theology, but my major in college was medieval studies, um, and to study medieval history, you also have to study classical history because it's just one long thread, um, but the, the likelihood would have been that Christians were observing Christmas on the 25th before 336, and that it had to do with Saturnalia because that was a time frame in which they could worship without really being questioned about it. Because, oh, sorry, we're just confused. We thought today was the 23rd. My bad. Um, something like that. There's also the possibility of the, you know, the 25th of March and the 25th of December. Um, but I don't know which of those appears f first as an explanation. I don't know when the 25th of December being nine months from March appears. When is that? Politics of Rome is probably the first one to mention that, but we also see in a work called On On Solstices and Equinoxes, which I think is a little bit after that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it starts showing up really in the third uh, century. We is when most scholars tend to say that's the earliest we can say the December twenty fifth date, uh, and then of course it's codified by by uh, by the time Constantine comes yeah. along. 
Um, yep. Uh, next super chat is from Douglas Ives for $5. Thank you very much. Uh, the question is, thoughts on the theory that Jesus was not a single person, but multiple people doing good in a terrible time? And I think an interesting, sec- an interesting more recent secular uh, relation to that would be the Molly, Molly Pitcher story in terms of the, it's a similar idea that Molly Pitcher, which is a thing at Valley Forge, if, mm-hmm. for people who are not familiar, where was a number of up, nurses, not one nurse. Was a number of nurses, yeah. not one. And just the reason I bring that up is I actually have a personal connection. My great-great-great-grandmother uh, did that during the war when her husband was uh, taken as a prisoner of war by the British for two years. She went to his commanding officer for help mm-hmm. uh, because the British burned down her house. And so they, yeah, she was allowed to stay with the camp and she helped run supplies to the soldiers on the battlefield. So just an interesting little tidbit of my history. So so on the one hand, yes, there are situations where a number of people working anonymously were compiled into one individual. There's also times where a number of people working are represented by the best known of those people. Um, and that usually goes back to very, very deep in history. But the thing with Jesus is that it just... First of all, it would not have been recognizable as a terrible time to anybody but Jews. Um, and what you see is that there are a number of follow-ons, like Apollonius of Tyana, who the the Romans invent and are like, look at this guy. He did the same things as Jesus. Jesus isn't special. Um, mm. But he was he was a fabrication. And all everything he did, if you and this was an exercise that they put us through in college, was they would give us uh, something that was written about Jesus and something that was written about Apollonius of Tyana and take out any identifying characteristics and have us try and guess who it was. And the point, no, nobody could ever do it successfully. Like, the point was that they they made the stories so similar that you could not tell which of these was Jesus and which was Apollonius. And it wasn't an effort to make us be like, ha, you don't know what you're talking about. It was an effort at how good the propaganda was. Hmm. Yeah, there's a scholar named Glenn Bowersock that actually argued after the Nero and persecution a lot of pagans started taking Christian elements and using them in some sort of pagan stories. Uh, uh, so that that's a possibility. I think when it comes to this issue, though, I mean, we John Dominic Crossan, who's not a Christian, I mean, not, not, he might be a progressive Christian, but he's not a uh, theological Christian, mm-hmm. uh, will say even if we didn't have any Christian writings, we would still know Jesus was an historical person from yeah. Tacitus, Josephus, Lucian, Pliny the Younger. Nobody they doubts all talk that about Jesus this. existed. No, no historian yeah, the, doubts that. And if he was an amalgamation of different characters, why doesn't Josephus mention them? He mentions yeah. all these other other messianic movements, like the Egyptian prophet Thaddeus, uh, Simon Bar Giora, or Simon Bar Kochba, who comes later. That's another guy. Uh, but he, none of these look like they were an amalgamation of Jesus. Right. It, so this is just very, very unlikely, and, no, and very few scholars take that idea seriously. You mentioned Nero, which uh, is a, a good quick aside here that I want to get into. Um, it is a rather popular theory right now that the book of revelation is a prophecy about nero returning um i don't like that at all Um, i think it's wrong for so many so many reasons um among them being that the there's only one passage of one chapter that could possibly have anything to do with nero and the rest of it doesn't i'm not sure what nero has to do with satan pulling a third of the stars from the sky uh but what's you know how how do you diffuse that when it's brought to you? So I'm we may disagree on this. I'm a preterist, a partial preterist, in that I think Revelation is more like an idealistic account of good versus evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the all of it discourses about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD using Jewish apocalyptic language, very similar to what we see in like Isaiah 19. 
Uh, so my general view is that it is basically a reference to the Roman Empire, uh, this idea that the Christians are being persecuted. Uh, hold fast, hold to the faith, and you will, you know, you will, we will be victorious in the end. Mm-hmm. Keep that in mind. So that'd be generally like my view of that. Uh, so I don't think it's prophesizing ever that Nero's going to return physically. I think that's just reading too much into a book that's clearly filled with too many metaphors for us to entirely be definitively sure on a lot of these meanings. Yeah, I, I refuse to interpret Revelation for people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. It's, they're like, what do you think of this? And I'm like, I don't. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to die, and somebody's going to explain it to me. That's the way I see it. Um, you know, do, do you believe, though, that it's that it's a prophecy of the end times, or do you think that it's all symbolic about the Second Temple? I think it's mostly about that, yeah. I think some stuff towards the end is about the, the resurrection, mm-hmm. final judgment, these kinds of things. But, I mean, uh, uh, the more I studied the cultural context, the more I started to lean towards that view, and then I just became a partial preterist. Got it. Um, yeah, my, my, my stance on revelation comes more of the i'm more in the camp of this is i a very long time period not just a very it's not like a series of things that are all going to happen at once that we're currently in the end times and that this is Mm -hmm. all of these prophecies are going to come true but one coming true does not imply that world is ending tomorrow Mm -hmm. you know it could Mm -hmm. it could take a long time and that we've been in the end times since Paul was writing his letters. Like, that that's that's where we are now. Um, but I'm definitely, you know, I can see how it could also be related to the Second Temple in, in part. You know, I don't think that that's, I don't think that's ridiculous at all. Um, uh, the next question is from Modus Noctis for $5. Thank you very much. It says, uh, questions, in your guys' opinion, what leads to people going to hell? Uh, I don't think it's just sin, but also the absence of something, perhaps philosophy. I don't. I don't think so. I think that sounds very gnostic, almost. Um, you know, you need some sort of philosophy to avoid hell. My, I did a whole video called "Does God Send People to Hell?" Mm-hmm. following C.S. Lewis, and my view is that what sends people to hell is themselves. C.S. Yeah. Lewis said the doors of hell are is locked from the inside. Uh, he said when it comes to the doctrine of hell, it is itself a question: What are you asking God to do? To wipe out past sins and give them a fresh start? He did on Calvary. Mm-hmm. To forgive them, they don't ask to be forgiven. To leave them alone. That's what hell is. There are only yeah. two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. I, yeah, I'm, I'm very much of the same opinion. Um, if you're curious, Modus, uh, Wendigoon and I have an entire Weird Bible podcast episode that's just on hell and the biblical hell and the uh, the terminology, the history, all of it. So if you're, if you're that curious about it, that's like an hour and a half long. Um, I don't know, if Mike, if you have anything. Um, of the same. Uh, yes, my video does God send people to hell. It's like a half hour. Okay, yeah. So you know, probably yours is more concise. <laughs> um, so and yeah. and you have more credentials than I do. So I would suggest if you're going to watch one of the two, watch his. Uh, if you mm-hmm. feel like watching for two hours of content, you know, ours is fun. We make jokes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we we got yelled at by one guy for how how many jokes we make during the Weird Bible podcast, and we were like, this is this is a show about making theology approachable, not about no. like. You know, being super serious. I got a joke. Okay. Your mama is so slow, it took her nine months to make a joke. <laughs> that's a good one. That's pretty That's solid. a good one. That one's all in the delivery, but that's yeah. a good one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, there is one that's not a super chat, but it is a pretty adamant question. Uh, and it is, are men of renowned priesthood men in reference to Numbers 16-2? Yeah, that was asked a lot of times. It was, yeah. Um, 
I'm and gonna which, pull which up first? number number sixteen two you said? Yes. Let me pull up numbers. Numbers sixteen. Now Izar's son Korah, the grandson of Kohath, a descendant of Levi, along with Eliab's sons Dathan and Abiram, and Pelus' son On, a descendant of Reuben, took charge of a rebellion against Moses, along with two hundred and fifty community leaders, Israelis who were famous men and representatives from the assembly. So uh, I guess maybe this is this is in the international standard version still. Um, so let me pull it up in the um, the NKJV and see if that is the same. The number sixteen two you said? Yes. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. I was looking at the wrong. I was looking at three. Uh, sons of Israel two. Let's see, I guess it says uh, in uh, the yeah. in the Hebrew it says it says men of renown. That yeah, so these were well known men yeah. in the NKJV as well. Um, yeah, so, so looking at the Hebrew here. So Nephilim does not mean men of renown. Nephilim is derived from another root word that means to fall. It's it's those who fall or those who fell upon the yeah. The the argument is there is discussion over whether that means fall as in fall from grace or fall as in to conquer to fall upon. Um, you know, so that's that's dependent. But yeah, the men of renown is not where the Nephilim translation is. The word that it gets translated as to into English in the KJV is giants. Uh, so the the main question they're asking here is not necessarily in reference to Nephilim, but more specifically whether or not that's in reference to men of priesthood. Ah, he's saying that because you suggest... Uh, I think that might be a mis misunderstanding of what was being said earlier. It was that Adam was supposed to be priestly and that the patriarchs were priestly, Got it. not that the Nephilim were priestly. Got it. Yeah, the, the phrase is also not the same in Genesis 6-4. It's mm -hmm. it literally, in Genesis 6-4, is men of the name. In, in number 16-2, it's men of renown or men of name. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's Anhasem, and then, then it's it's uh, on say Hashem, so there's a there's a definite article in there, I believe. I so think can, so. Can you read Hebrew? A little bit. I'm trying to learn more, but I gotta I gotta get back at it. It's, yeah. I'm trying my best to get it. It's just busy. I, I, it's like if I get to the point where we can do this full time, I'm gonna try and learn Hebrew and Koine Greek um, because it would just make it so much easier to to read. And I've got my interlinear, so I could actually just sit there and read that. I don't even need to buy a new Bible. That'd be cool. Mm -hmm. uh, we do have one from Plaz, not a super chat, but uh, just kind of a fun suggestion. Would love to have an episode, maybe your next weird Bible with Wendigoon, talking about the parallels between Jesus' life and the Old Testament, i.e. the binding of Isaac, where he carried the wood for the pyre and the cross. Yeah, I mean, we can, we can look into it. There's a lot of parallels. Um, you know, part of the reason that Christians are so adamant that Christ is the Messiah is because of all of these parallels that you see between Christ and his teachings and in his life to earlier prophets like Daniel and Isaiah. Um, you know, so there's, there's definitely something there. Um, and Christ mentioned stuff that's in Enoch, like, you know, it, it, he was obviously a very, very well-versed Jewish preacher before he started his own ministry. You know, mm. he was either because he had divine revelation or because he had grown up in it. Obviously a mix of the two. If you're Christian, you know, he's, he's God, therefore he knows what he's talking about. Um, I guess that, you know, that is a good one to bring up really quick. I don't know how much time we have left. We're close to the end here, but since we don't have any other, uh, any chat questions right now, um, what is your opinion? Like, how, how do you, how do you explain the Trinity to people? Uh, I, I actually came up with a pretty a new analogy lately. Uh, if you saw the recent Marvel show, Moon Knight, I haven't, uh, I he is, um, it. he's, uh, well, they set him up as if he has multiple personality disorder and he mm -hmm. really doesn't because some of that disorder they have one they switch between different alters yeah but in the show it's like he is one mind 
and there was just three persons in his head that talked to each other and go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so generally, the way I sort of explain it is this. I say, think of yourself and your own agency. You really, in your own sense, you have two senses of your, of your own agency. There is the narrow sense, the little man in the machine that decides between different desires or different mm-hmm. thoughts. What type of ice cream am I going to eat? Well, I have a desire for this one, a desire for that one. Let me think between them. Mm-hmm. But then you have another sense of agency I call the broad sense of agency, which is the whole collection of all of that stuff of you, mm-hmm. your thoughts, desires, emotions, dispositions. So when you're driving, mm-hmm. you don't have to consciously decide to push the pedal or consciously decide to turn the wheel. You're sort of operating on autopilot. So you have like a broad sense of agency that we all have, and then a narrow sense of agency. And you're both fully that sense you you wouldn't say that you're just a part like your limited sense or your narrow sense is just a part of you that is fully you mm-hmm. because philosophy of mind is different than the physical world there's no spatial dimensions in philosophy of mind you don't say your thoughts are on top of your memories or it's behind your personality mm-hmm. understanding of agency is sort of like that you're fully a narrow sense of agency and you're fully your broad sense of agency if you got in an accident could be like no i was daydreaming that wasn't me that was my other aspect of me that doesn't make sense it's still you so the trinity in my view is just three narrow senses of agency and one broad sense of agency they're all fully god and that they all fully or have as uh, can they're all fully can have access to the full mental space of what it is to be god uh, but they're also three individual different centers of consciousness within this full being that we call god mm-hmm. so that's generally what i do i explain philosophy of mind I explain the different type of agencies we have about ourselves, broad and narrow sense. Um, and then, well, just it doesn't follow that far to argue that maybe God is also just three narrow senses mm-hmm. in a broad sense. Uh, and so, generally, I want people to take away from that is that stop trying to compare the Trinity to physical things. It doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. God is a mind. Use the parameters we know from philosophy of mind, and you will get much better reasonable explanations. Well, not to do exactly just that, but the way you were describing it, I wanted to borrow something from Wendigan specifically uh, in terms of icebergs. It sounds like you're kind of, you know, in a human sense, delineating the conscious from the subconscious. And to put that into a tangible element, it sounds like the conscious or the perceivable elements of the being would be like an iceberg where above the surface of the water, you see three independent direct pieces sticking out of the water. But beneath it is actually all connected into one thing. That would be, you know, a, a subconscious relevance to that. So it, do you think that might be a good way to interpret it in the sense of, let's say, you know, humans are like birds in the sense of we c- they can only experience what is above the surface of the ocean. And to us, we see three individual beings. But in reality, they are all interconnected in ways that we are not capable of perceiving. Yeah, as long as we don't just say God is an iceberg, I would because I, <laughs> I want to avoid comparing the Trinity to physical things. But yeah, it's sort of like C.S. Lewis talks about that in mere Christianity. It's like, you know, we are stuck in this three-dimensional world, but maybe on like higher planes of reality, you can have a being that's multiple persons of one mind. And again, if you just take, just watch the show Moon Knight, it's it's like, oh my gosh, this is, this yeah. is a perfect analogy because it's one mind and there's three persons in the mind. So so Christian doctrine kind of holds that the the Trinity is present in some form or another all throughout the Old Testament. Um, yeah. How do you feel about the you know, essentially what was the breaking point for the schism, which is the, the Philia Quay. How do you feel about that? Like, uh, does, 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 does the father, does the son and the Holy spirit both proceed from the father or is it that the Holy spirit proceeds from the father and the son? I tend to say that it, the spirit proceeds from both, but to me, it's such a, 
minor issue. I don't yeah. think it should have been a schism. Like, it's like, really? This is what you decided to... Fine, whatever. But I think the Orthodox like, Church it... was just looking for a reason at that point. You may be correct. Which is That's understandable. A As a historian, that. it's understandable. Like, Rome, yeah. Rome was really out of pocket at the moment. Um... Yeah, it's like one of those things that's like... I would say proceeds from both, but if someone was like, no, it's definitely proceed only. I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. Like, fine, like, I don't care. Like, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. Um, all right, so uh, I think that, that just about does it. Uh, you know, I'm yep. trying to see if we've got... Somebody asked one question. There we go, one final one. Uh, if you determine to believe A rather than B, is that determinism or LFW? I'm not sure what you mean by LFW. I'm not sure what they mean either. I mean, I don't think, I think that's presupposing determinism uh, to begin with. I don't, I don't think consciousness can apply with those type of physical I also, uh, I, assumptions. I don't, I don't buy determinism at all as a no. as a doctrine. I don't think it makes any sense. Oh, Jamie can message me. He wants to talk more about that. All right. Sounds good. Well, uh, you know, this, this brings us to the end. Uh, you know, Mike, if you want to plug yourself for those who don't already follow you. Yeah, follow me on TikTok. I'm trying to grow on there more because um, I think that's going to be the future, unfortunately. But I think that's where it's going. Follow me on YouTube, Inspiring Philosophy. Um, my final part of my Exodus documentary is coming out on July 8th where I go over all the evidence for the conquest. I got the latest reports on Jericho. And I'll be covering them there. So good stuff, actually. Very good stuff. I'm going to sit down and watch through all of this. Uh, I'm excited <laughs> for it. So, yeah, yes, thank you so much for coming on. I, I love this conversation. Uh, you and I are going to have to have some private conversations because I'm very curious about your opinions on some other stuff. But I'm, I'm very excited, and uh, I'm glad that we were able to have a nice civil conversation after all of the uh, contention I've seen on this side of TikTok recently. So, uh, you know, it was great to have you. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be talking to you again in the future. Absolutely. Anytime you want me on again, just let me know. I'm happy to do it. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, and to everyone watching, thank you as well. Remember to smash the like button, share the show with your friends, and if you want to really help us out, we have a $1 tier on Patreon that you could easily use to throw us enough money to buy half a coffee now and then. Um, so, Where are you getting you so coffees much. that are only two bucks? Keurig. Oh, I wish. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, guys. We'll see you in the next one.